0: There's this scene where the Austrian ambassador to Russia is meeting with the Russian foreign minister. These are right in the middle days of July of 1914. This is in between the beginning of the month of the July crisis of 1914, when we saw the initial reactions to the Franz Ferdinand assassination, and before the end of the month, when things really started steamrolling towards war. And in these middle days, there was these sort of cat-and-mouse games being played between the Triple Entente and the other side, which was, you know, Germany and Austria. But in this case, especially it was Austria that was trying to play a cat-and-mouse game. Because, as you recall from the last episode, Berchtold, who, you know, was the Austrian foreign minister, he was trying to play this game where, where he would have a strong response to Serbia. And that is, you know, Austria, remember, they're putting together this ultimatum that they're going to send to Serbia. And he wanted a strong response to the Franz Ferdinand assassination on the one hand. But on the other hand, he was trying to not let all of his cards out on the table yet. He didn't want, especially countries like Russia, to know exactly what he had planned. And so he had this secret that he was trying to keep about the ultimatum and when they were going to send it to Serbia. He was trying to keep it from Russia and keep it from France so that they couldn't coordinate a response. And so there's this meeting between the Austrian ambassador to Russia and the Russian foreign minister, and that is Sazanov. The Austrian foreign minister to Russia is the one who called for the meeting. And the reason that Austria wanted this meeting was so that they could determine just where Russia was at in the sequence of events, and more specifically, if Russia knew about the ultimatum. The larger sort of cat and mouse game of what's happening is sort of encapsulated in this, in this meeting between the two because Austria wants to find out what it is that Russia knows without, you know, giving away what it is they're trying to do. And Sazonov and Russia also would be curious to hear up front from Austria what it is they're trying to do without giving away that they know too much. And so it's this kind of funny game where they are talking to each other, trying to get the other person to say something without giving anything away themselves. And so each sort of tries this with each other in this meeting. The Austrian ambassador tries to get Sazonov to reveal if the Russians know anything about the ultimatum. And meanwhile, Sazonov does the same thing to the Austrian ambassador, trying to get him to say something about what it is Austria is going to do in response to Serbia. In the end, really nothing much more than, you know, small talk is what happens at this meeting. But it's what's happening beneath the talk that is really interesting, because can you imagine what, what's going through their minds there? Each side thinks they're winning this game of diplomacy against the other because the, the Austrians come out of it thinking, oh, yeah, the Russians don't really know anything. Meanwhile, the Russians, as we talked about on the last episode, do know what's happening because of uh, intercepted messages and because of leaks out of Austria of what it is that of the ultimatum that they're planning. And this kind of meeting is kind of the perfect place to push us into the latter days of the July crisis, the last couple weeks, because soon this diplomacy is going to be the name of the game. Diplomacy is going to decide the fate of Europe, decide the fate of a major war breaking out. Communication and playing cat and mouse games and alliances and trying to read the other side. These are all the things that ultimately bring about war and where the ultimate breakdown in communication and breakdown in uh, sanity leads to the outbreak of a terrible war. This type of diplomacy these types of games that are being played, this is how war comes about. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll, and on today's episode, we are going to continue our look at the July Crisis of 1914. Today we'll cover the French meeting with the Russians in St. Petersburg. We'll cover the ultimatum being sent to Austria and the response to the ultimatum. And we'll take a closer look at how Russia could be blamed for the outbreak of World War I. Remember, we're looking at, in each episode, we're kind of looking at a different country for how they are to blame for the outbreak of World War I. Today, we'll focus on Russia. We left off last episode with the French President, Raymond Poincaré, he was on his way to go to St. Petersburg in Russia to visit Tsar Nicholas II. This had been a meeting that had been planned for a while, and the point of it was for the two leaders, the leaders of France and Russia, for them to make sure their alliance was on the same page, to bolster their alliance the biggest thing questioning their alliance, the biggest strain on it, was all of the news coming out of the Balkans. The news of Franz Ferdinand's assassination, the questions and the rumors about what Austria-Hungary would do in response, what they would do to Serbia, and if Russia would back up Serbia, and would then France back up Russia. These were the questions That would be most important for the visit between Poincaré and Nicholas II. Poincaré traveled to St. Petersburg by ship. He left from Dunkirk and traveled through the Baltic all the way to St. Petersburg. Along with him was his Prime Minister, Viviani. This wasn't Poincaré's first choice as the French Prime Minister but the French elections had given him Viviani by way of another politician, Joseph Caillot. And this is a a longer story that I'm not going to go over here, but long story short, Joseph Caillot had had won these elections and was in line to be prime minister, but his wife had shot and killed a journalist, and so Caillot had stepped down while the trial was underway in France. A uh, Quick side note, this trial really captured the French imagination throughout the course of July in a way that left any sort of headlines in the newspapers regarding the build-up to World War I, regarding the July crisis. All those headlines were pushed to the side in favor of this scandalous trial in which the wife of a famous politician murders a journalist. With this murder, Caillaux was supposed to be the prime minister, but he steps down and in his place is Viviani. Now, the reason Poincaré was not super into Viviani being his prime minister was because uh, he was more left-wing than Poincaré, and he was more against militarization, against war. The funny thing is that Cayo, the one whose wife had murdered the journalist, would have been even more anti-war than Viviani had been. And I certainly have the question as if Cayo actually had been prime minister, if things would have played out any differently on this trip to Russia, if he would have been more forceful in his anti-war opinions, or even uh, in hoping to, to build French policy against the build to World War One, but that's, you know, a hypothetical for another day. But here on this trip to St. Petersburg, you have Poincaré with Viviani. And Viviani is, like I said, is not as into war as Poincaré is. So Poincaré is the one go- who's going to be do mo- doing most of the talking. Another quick side note, Viviani actually gets really sick on this trip to St. Petersburg, so even if he had wanted to speak up more, he wasn't able to, because he actually comes down really sick in his time in St. Petersburg. So here you have Poincaré and Viviani, and they're on this boat on their way to St. Petersburg, and they enter the harbor. And this scene always struck me when I read about it, because here it is in the middle of summer. I can imagine being on the Baltic Sea, on the ship and then you enter into the harbor and you have all of these Russian civilians who had taken their own boats out to greet the French as they arrive and then all of a sudden you have Russian warships firing off their cannons in celebration for the arrival of the French and I just have to imagine it's such a surreal scene you have these two European powers coming together in a beautiful setting with the feeling of momentum, the feeling of importance, and with cannons firing, a sort of royalty of another age that I personally haven't been a part of, all happening here. In Poincaré, too much fanfare boards the ship on which the Tsar Nicholas is, and they don't waste any time in getting the discussion going about their alliance. Now I'm not going to go over, you know, every detail of this trip to St. Petersburg. If you get the chance to read about it, I would, because some of the details really struck me. They really, you know, put me there. The weight of this meeting again, things are being decided that are going to change the course of the 20th century. Here on this trip of Poincaré in Russia, and things are going to be decided, and it's full of these moments of royalty that I'm just, you know, I I am. A, it's a totally different world to me. It's fancy food it's fancy clothes it's gossip it's rumors between politicians it's ceremonies but for the nuts and bolts of what it is the story that i'm trying to go through today and that is the july crisis what really matters is the meetings between Poincaré and, and nicholas ii as well as the discussions that the russian foreign minister by the last name of Sazanov, the discussions that he has with various ambassadors during these couple days that the french are in st petersburg sazonov is an important figure in this story he's kind of known for being less decisive in terms of making military decisions but like a lot of these decision makers in the july crisis throughout europe he becomes more belligerent at this time he's actually one of the key movers and shakers that sort of builds, and pushes Russia towards war. So remember his name, Sazonov. As far as Nicholas and Poincaré are concerned, the two of them pretty much get on the same page pretty early on, and Poincaré makes it clear that the French will have Russia's back should Russia decide to go to war over Serbia. Poincaré is more right-wing. He's more concerned about having a strong alliance with Russia because of, uh, of Poincaré's concern about Germany and the German military and the German army because French, you know, borders Germany. And so this idea of sort of boxing Germany in between France and Russia, that's a big deal to Poincaré. And he wants to make sure that Nicholas knows that the French have Russia's back because they have a common enemy in Germany. Meanwhile, of course, Russia has an interest in making sure that the French are going to back them up because also for the same reason, because of Germany. And if Russia is going to attack Serbia, of course, there's the chance that Germany then backs Austria. And then all of a sudden, Germany and Russia are in a war. So it would be nice to have the French support in backing up Russia against Germany. These are all the dominoes that do end up falling that make the war what it is. And it's here in these moments where these type of alliances, the alliance in this case between Russia and France is solidified, that takes us one step closer towards the big European war. Russia in this time is fascinating to me. I am reading a lot about the Russian Revolution right now. In the same time you have Russia gearing up for war, they are dealing with their internal crises of their own. You had the revolution of 1905, which brings about some more forms of democracy within the country, a form of parliaments is set up within the country. But then you have the monarch, you have Nicholas, who's trying to hold on to this ancient ideal of the Romanov rule in Russia, royal rule in Russia. And you know he he kind of doesn't do that well dealing with the rise of democracy in Russia. And so you still have this royal family, the Romanovs, who are fascinating to me because, again, this is other time period of um, this idea of a family. Uh, being royal and sort of above the rest of the people and a monarch making decisions. And this royal family really sticks out to me at this meeting between the French and the Russians, because you have the daughters of Nicholas II who are going around gossiping with each other, gossiping with other foreign leaders, talking about how Germany is going to be crushed and things like this. And I just, again, I can't imagine being at these kinds of scenes. So, again, to get down to the nitty gritty of this meeting, you have Poincare and Nicholas II, and they solidify their alliance. As I mentioned before, you also have the foreign minister in Russia, Sazonov, and he has a run in with the German ambassador to Russia that really stands out. Sazonov at this point is now more sure that the French will back up Russia in a European clash. And so he is is standing on more solid ground when he thinks about what it is Austria is doing in Serbia. He's standing on more solid ground with the idea that Russia could more easily back up Serbia knowing that the French had Russia's back. And he has an encounter with the German ambassador in Russia which stands out to me because Sazonov attacks here. Sazonov becomes aggressive and he, and he meets this German ambassador and the German ambassador, you know, is talking about Austria has the right to defend itself, uh, talking about this idea of the monarchical principle. Again, this idea that uh, royalty, royals should stand up for other royals and uh, a royal in this case was murdered, Franz Ferdinand. And so shouldn't, doesn't Russia have sympathy for this? At this point, and this is what stands out to me, is that Sazanov strikes back at all of these arguments. He doesn't stand by the monarchical principle. He doesn't believe that Austria has any case for self-defense against Serbia. He doesn't have sympathy, really. Uh, He has sympathy for the death of Franz Ferdinand, but he doesn't have sympathy for the idea that should Austria want to you know, take Serbia to task for what had happened. Sazanov doesn't even think that Serbia should, you know, necessarily be held responsible for something that hasn't, in his mind, been officially tied to the Serbian government, per se. It was just, you know, an act of these radical Bosnian Serbs who who, uh, who murdered Franz Ferdinand, and the Serbian government itself shouldn't be held accountable for it. The important thing to remember, too, is that, remember, Sazanov at this point kind of has heard rumors and kind of knows what it is Austria is going to do. And that is, a, and that is this ultimatum that Austria is putting together to send to Serbia. And so he knows that this is what Austria is planning to do. And Sazenov really punches back at the German ambassador. And he says, quote, there must be no talk of an ultimatum, end quote. Now this really explains kind of the mood that Sazanov in, and he's kind of building himself up into this leader in Russia that's going to to lead Russia to defend the Serbian people from an aggressive Austria. And he has France's back now, so he can be more aggressive in how it is he he talks to other ambassadors. And in this case, he's talking to the German ambassador because he knows the alliance that Germany has with Austria. And so he's talking to him not only because he knows that this German ambassador is going to relay this conversation to Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, but also because he knows that he's that he's essentially talking to Austria, too, at this point, because of the close connection between Germany and Austria. And so it's here in this moment that the stakes are laid out, at least from Sazenov. And it's another moment that brings Europe closer to war, because now France has Russia's back, and Russia is threatening Germany and threatening Austria. Don't do the ultimatum. However, Austria was well along... In developing its ultimatum at this point to send to Serbia. In fact, the very day that Poincaré leaves St. Petersburg, Austria is going to send its ultimatum to Serbia. What's in this ultimatum? What does it actually say? The ultimatum was pretty harsh. It consisted of a number of different points that They were expecting Serbia to acquiesce to. They asked, among other things, they asked Serbia to censor anti-Austro-Hungarian what they called propaganda from different Serbian publications. They asked Serbia to imprison two co-conspirators in the Ferdinand assassination. But the sticking point ultimately in the ultimatum were points five and six. And in these requests, Austria Hungary asked Serbia to, long story short, give up self sovereignty in the prosecution of those who had taken part in the conspiracy to kill Franz Ferdinand. More specifically, Points 5 and 6 asked to let Austro-Hungarian officials take part in tracking down and in prosecuting those who had taken part in the plot to kill Ferdinand. And this ultimately is a foreign country asking to take part in the judicial process of another country. As you can tell, this would have rubbed any country the wrong way, basically to give up self-sovereignty. And this was the Most draconian of the requests from Austro Hungary, and it was the one that caused the most controversy. It was the one that, as the ultimatum made its rounds across Europe, it was the one that stuck out the most to the leaders of other countries as they read it. It's what made Russia really upset as Russia thought about protecting its ally in Serbia, and it's going to cause consternation for Serbia as they decide how to respond. It's really worth going over what it is specifically that Austro-Hungary asked of Serbia in points five and six, so you can more specifically get the sense of what it is they were saying in this ultimatum. Here's point five, and it is asking Serbia, quote, To agree to the cooperation in Serbia of the organs of the imperial and royal government in the suppression of the subversive movement directed against the integrity of the monarchy. And so, if you didn't quite catch it, as I said before, this is asking Serbia that Austro-Hungary, they called themselves the imperial and royal government, Austro-Hungary is asking Serbia that they let them take part in what would be sovereign matters for Serbia, to take part in the, quote, suppression of subversive movement, end quote. And here's point six. And this is Austro-Hungary asking Serbia, quote, to institute a judicial inquiry against every participant in the conspiracy of the 28th of June who may be found in Serbian territory. The organs of the imperial and royal government delegated for this purpose will take part in the proceedings held for this purpose, end quote. And that last part is really the tough one to swallow for Serbia because it is asking that Austria-Hungary, quote, will take part in, end quote. That is, uh, again, a viol- would be a violation of Serbia Serbian sovereignty. And so, like I said before, the Austrian plan is to hand off this ultimatum at about the same time that Poincaré is leaving from St. Petersburg. And the idea here is that they're doing this after the meeting between Poincaré and Nicholas, so that at least what they thought was true was that this whole thing would be kept a secret until this point and, and Poincaré and, and Nicholas would not would be sort of blindsided by this after their meeting and not beforehand because if it was beforehand and the two of them could have talked strategy and could have done even more to uh, ensure they were both on the same page in regards to their response to the ultimatum. Of course, as it, as it plays out, there's rumors of the ultimatum swirling around and there's actually even some confirmation of it. And so it's not totally blindsiding to Russia, but still their plan is to send the ultimatum. Austria's plan is to send the ultimatum at roughly the same time that Poincare is leaving. The other advantage this gives them is that Poincare will be out at sea where it's more difficult to make decisions because of communication issues and because Poincare wouldn't be with all of his uh, military leaders and foreign ministers and things like that to, to make decisions while he was out at sea. And so the Austrian note is ready to be given to Serbia and the Austrian ambassador in Belgrade. He wants to meet with the Serbian prime minister Pasic and Pasic isn't there. And so he has someone else in his place. Take the note a quick side note about Pasic. Remember we went, we talked a lot about him in the first episode of this podcast series he was, as as I've read historians, they kind of describe Pasich as kind of shrinking in the spotlight in big situations. And so he actually, like I said, has someone else in his place there to take the note. And he actually is not even in Belgrade. He's he's out campaigning for an upcoming election, and he's he's not near Belgrade. And he's called back to Belgrade because Austria wants to meet with him to hand off their note. But he. Had, doesn't even want to deal with it at this point, and so he kind of ignores it at first. There could be a number of explanations, at least as historians explain it, for the sort of lack of action from Pasich, the way he kind of shrunk in this moment. One of them could just be his personality, where he didn't like to deal with big, heavy responsibilities. He had lots of reasons to not know what to do in this situation. Should Austria present with, present him with a sort of proposal that was really harsh on Serbia? Should Austria choose to do that? Which of course is what they ended up doing, but should they do that? Pasic really was in a kind of lose-lose situation. And uh, we'll see how he kind of responds to this lose-lose situation in a minute. But the reason it's a lose-lose situation is because he's not confident that the Serbian military is in a place where it can fend off an Austrian attack at this point. He can't just totally put it back in Austria's face because of the concern about the Austrian overpowering Serbia. But at the same time, there are so many issues if he fully acquiesces to all of the Austrian demands a lot of this has to do with the fact that remember and this goes back to the first episode of this series but within serbia there are a lot of these nationalist mili- militaristic movements many even within the serbian military itself are part of these like the black hand that's the most famous one there's concern that if posits totally gives in to austria that there's going to be a coup on his hands from these nationalist movements and that they'll take down the Serbian government and take over themselves. And so, Pasic can't even do that because of the concern about the internal strife and turmoil, should he totally give in to Austrian demands. The other thing that Pasic had to worry about was if he agreed to all of the Austrian demands, one of these would be that he would agree to them taking an even closer look at the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. This is something that Christopher Clark in The Sleepwalker, is a book that I've referenced a few times on this podcast, he really gets into is that, you know, this has really opened the door to the Serbian government being even more tied to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. A closer look might reveal even more of the ways in which the Serbian government was involved in the assassination. And, you know, for example, there might be, they might even uncover the extent to which Apis The head of the Serbian military intelligence, the extent to which he was involved in the assassination of Ferdinand. And this would open the door even more to global disapproval of Serbia and the role in which they played in the assassination of Ferdinand. So, this is another reason why Pasic didn't want to fully acquiesce to all of the Austrian demands in the ultimatum. And so he's kind of left in this place where. You know, it's not what. What can he do? And he knows this is coming, and so this is a reason historians point to for him sort of backing down in this moment. But he has someone in his place to to take the note, and the Austrian ambassador at the appointed time on that Thursday, July twenty third, shows up to hand off the note, and at first this kind of funny scene plays out in this room in Belgrade where this Austrian diplomat is there to hand off this 20th century changing note, this ultimatum, where the Serbian official is basically doesn't want to take it. (laughs) I guess the idea being that if they don't take it, they can't be held responsible for it. And eventually what happens is that the Austrian ambassador just sort of leaves it on the table. And it's like, well, there it is. It's yours now. (laughs) My job here is done. I've given you the note. And with that, he leaves. And the Serbian officials in the room take a glance at it. They look at it and, wow, could you imagine that looking at this note and seeing these demands that Austria has on Serbia? These heavy demands, these demands that would take away pretty much Serbian sovereignty especially those points five and six that we talked about earlier. You know, all that long talk about that I gave about Pasic, eventually they get him to come back um, because, you know, Serbia has two days at this point now. That's a 48 hour window that Austria gave Serbia to respond. So it's Thursday, July 23rd that the note is handed off. So they'll have that night. They'll have the day Friday and then most of the day Saturday to figure out what it is they're going to say in response. Pasic does make his way back, but again, like he's, he and the rest of those Serbian decision makers are stuck in this spot where, you know, what do we do with this? We can't give into this because we can't totally deny Austria because of the Austrian military but we can't really give into it either because of the threat of a coup from the sort of militarist nationalist movements that were within our own country. What do they do? What are they supposed to do in this kind of situation? I it, I, uh, I, think about this too, and I, oh man, I all I can think is I, I'm glad it wasn't me the one in that situation. Serbia at first is sort of very acquiescent they don't want to really face Austria at this point. And so as they start crafting their reply, they're actually very acquiescent to these Austrian demands. You know, some of them are more easy to acquiesce to, but again, it's sort of some of those sticking points. It's those points five and six that we've talked about that really are the sticking points. But even on these, they're showing to be more compliant, but then things change. Now, why do they change? Why, why at this point do things change? And that is because news starts trickling in about how Russia wants Serbia to respond to the ultimatum. Russia starts making it clearer and clearer that they will back up Serbia against Austria. So this, to me, is again, is one of those sort of crossroads moments in the July crisis. You know, there have been so many of these moments where if it had gone differently, maybe we're talking about, and that's a maybe, maybe we're talking about an absence of a major war at this point, as opposed to what it is, and that is one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. And it's at this point that I just, I wonder if Russia had not signaled as heavily that they would back up Serbia if Serbia would have fully or at least mostly agreed to Austrian demands. And Austria, despite its best efforts to start a war with Serbia, would have been left in a spot where all they could do is maybe have some military within Belgrade to ensure that the demands are met, but after that have really not have the right justification for going to war with Serbia. And so this is why this is a sort of crossroads moment, because at this point when Russia makes it clear that it's going to back up Serbia, its ally, Serbia all of a sudden has the resolve to show more defiance against the Austrian demands. And the Serbian official response is what at least one Austrian official at the time referred to as a sort of mas- masterful piece of diplomacy. The Serbian response is really clever because what the Serbs do in response is they, as I read it, they it seems that they sort of emotionally understood why Austro-Hungary would be really upset about the Ferdinand assassination. And they made it seem as if, you know, we're on your side, Austria, we're on your side in this, we're... We're going to do what we can to to do what you asked, and that is to censor propaganda against your country. We're going to arrest those people that you mentioned, even though they said they couldn't find one of them. We're going to, you know, we're going to do what it is you ask in a lot of these things. And more than that, you know, we We want to have good neighborly relations, or at least that's what uh, they were saying in their official response to the ultimatum. You know, there's obviously much more tension between the two than that would indicate. But as I said before, it's really those points five and six that are the sticking points, the ones that are going to be difficult to get around. And as they respond to those specifically, they can't acquiesce to these points. It's worth reading the Serbian response to points five and six, and I'll do that here. Here's their specific response to point five. Uh, As a quick side note, they use the phrase I and R, and that's a reference to imperial and royal government, and that's just a reference to Austro-Hungary. Here's a response to point five. Quote, The royal government confesses that it is not clear about the sense and the scope of the demand of the INR government, which concerns the obligation on the part of the Royal Serbian government to permit the cooperation of officials of the INR government on Serbian territory. But it declares that it is willing to accept every cooperation, which does not run counter to international law and criminal law, as well as to the friendly and neighborly relations. So as you can see there, they're they're not giving in to... To the 0.5, they're not giving in to the Austrian demands, and even though they're saying more positively that they just don't quite understand what Austria is saying, and that they're not doing it in an aggressive way, they're just saying, you know, we're not quite sure what you're saying, and you know, we're willing to cooperate. Um, But the key phrase is the quote, the part that says quote, which does not run counter to international and criminal law, as well as to the friendly and neighborly relations. So. This is really a shrewd diplomatic move to act as if Serbia wants to cooperate and wants to be a good uh, neighbor and wants to not r- rise the tension in things, yet is still, you know, not willing to fully acquiesce. And then here's their response to point six, quote, the royal government considers it its duty as a matter of course, to begin an investigation against all those persons who have participated in the outrage of June 28th and who are in its territory. As far as the cooperation in this investigation especially of delegated officials of the INR government is concerned, this cannot be accepted, as this is a violation of the Constitution and of criminal procedure. Yet, in some cases, the result of the investigation might be communicated to the Austro-Hungarian officials. So as you can see, this is a little bit of a stronger no, yet in the context of the whole thing, Serbia is still trying to indicate that it is willing to cooperate with Austro-Hungary. It's trying to indicate that it's not trying to be the aggressor here. And this, as I said before, really seems to be a shrewd response because it actually almost ends up averting war as we'll see how other European leaders respond to what it is Serbia wrote here. And the scene in which Posich hands off the note to the Austrian ambassador is, again, another one of those scenes like I described earlier, when Austria was the one handing off its note to Serbia. When Posich is there to hand off the Serbian response to Austria, it's another one of those scenes that is sort of surreal. As soon as Pasich hands the note off, the Austrian ambassador takes a look at it and it doesn't take him long to determine to say what it is I'm sure he was already determined to say heading in heading into that room, which is that, nope, this doesn't meet our demands. This doesn't meet what we said we wanted from you. And he immediately heads out, not only of the room, but out of Belgrade altogether and makes his way back across the Austrian border. And just like that he's gone. Serbia and Austria now have a crisis brewing on their hands in which Austria will declare war on Serbia. Meanwhile, it's important that we go over what Russia is doing in this time in between when Austria hands off the note and when Serbia responds. That is, the note is hands off on July 23rd, and so then you have the 24th and the 25th, and it's on this Friday July 24th that is one of the sort of the the biggest days I feel like I'm saying that about so many of these days but really Friday July 24th is one of the biggest days for Russia because on this day you have Sazonov and he is now aware and has seen the text of the ultimatum that Austria sent to Serbia and what he does on this day is ultimately why against Serbia felt like Russia would have its back and why one of the reasons they started to they started to actually defy Austria more when initially they were being more conciliatory in, in, in drafting their response to Austria. And it, it's it's Sazanov, it's, it's how he replies here that sort of gives Serbia its muscle knowing that Russia would have its back. Sazenov springs into action on this Friday after he sees the ultimatum and he calls together a council of, of his ministers and he puts into action a plan that will start to Mobilize the Russian army, and this is a point where a lot of people start to point the finger at Russia for bringing about war. Because you know you're you're putting together a part a partial mobilization of the Russian army at this point, before even you know war has been declared. This decision to partially mobilize and this decision to fully back Serbia is another one of those steps that's taken towards war. Basically, Sazanov. Russia for war on this day. He makes it easy for Nicholas to sign off on a war, and he makes it easy for Serbia to respond with strength against Austria as opposed to acquiescing to their demands. So here you have Russia, which has approved a partial mobilization, and even soon they will also do something else, which they call officially a period preparatory to war. So Russia at this point, you could really make the case that they are kind of leading Europe on a war footing. And of course, you know, they're not, they're not doing it in a vacuum. There's, there's all kinds of reasons for why it is they're doing, but nevertheless, they are the first to do some of these major drastic steps in terms of mobilizing in this way. Meanwhile, we have to go over what Germany is doing at this time. To kind of remind you of the timeline of where we're at, Serbia responds to the ultimatum on Saturday, July 25th. Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany plays an important role at this point and had a couple things played out differently over these next couple days between Germany and Austria. This is another one of those times where, you know, things might have played out a lot differently, where war possibly could have been averted. As you can tell by the name of this podcast, the Points of No Return in History, I am very interested in these moments where things could have gone differently. And this is another one of those moments. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II is sort of relying on others to keep him updated on what's happening in the developments in the ultimatum and the response and what what Russia's doing and what you know Britain and France are doing. And he gets the chance to read the Serbian response to the Austrian ultimatum on July 28th. July 28th is a really important day in the development of the July crisis, because on that day, Austria officially declares war on Serbia. And it's just that morning that Kaiser Wilhelm reads the Serbian response, the Serbian response to the ultimatum as he reads it, he's sort of taken aback because he is actually very surprised. And uh, he's very surprised by the Serbian response. And he feels that they're actually acquiescing to a lot of the Austrian demands. And he actually sees an opportunity for diplomacy here, or at least more diplomacy than a declaration of war. And he sees the chance that this note might be acceptable to Austria, or he sees the chance for more diplomacy and some minor changes to be made to the note. And maybe, you know, to ensure those changes are made, you know, Austria could occupy the city of Belgrade to ensure the things that uh, Serbia said they would do, they would allow to do. But ultimately, you know, war could be averted. This is Wilhelm's response to the Serbian ultimatum. And if he were to, if this is his response, if this would be Germany's official response, that would mean Austria has to take it seriously because, remember, Austria is dependent upon Germany's backing in any kind of major European war because Austria-Hungary is not strong enough to take on Russia and Serbia and possibly France at the same time. They need German backing. They need the German military. And so if Germany says no war, then Austria has to say no war as well. And if this is Wilhelm's response you know, isn't this a chance for war to be stopped? There's one problem, though. His response is too late. He reads the Serbian reply too late, he sends his instructions to Austria too late, and Austria declares war on Serbia. Had Wilhelm read the note the previous evening, had he even read it earlier that morning, you know, that morning he actually goes out on a horse ride before he comes back to read the note. And had any of these things changed, it's possible that Austria never declares war on Serbia, and instead, maybe it's possible we just have a temporary occupation of Belgrade, and Russia never gets involved, and Germany never gets involved, and the whole thing is avoided that's not what happens. Instead, Berktold and Austria declare war on Serbia that day, July 28th. Berchtold is sort of rushing things along at this point, and this is something that is curious to me as I read it, and really, you know, at least from in my opinion, really points the finger a lot at this Austrian foreign minister, because Berktold is really doing a lot. He, it seems like he really wants war, He's kind of pushing for it. There's no reason he had to declare war at this point. He could have waited for more diplomacy. He could have double-checked with Wilhelm that this is what Germany wanted Austria to do at this point. And when he finally reads Wilhelm's note, where Wilhelm is surprised at the Serbian response, he kind of says, oh, well, it's too late. We've already declared war. It's already done. There were even British interventions at this point trying to bring about more diplomacy You know, at at certain points, Britain had suggested that there be a major meeting of diplomacy, major mediation between some of the superpowers to try to solve the situation. And so the other thing that told is rushing to do is to make sure that none of these mediation proposals ever work. Meanwhile, in Russia, Sazonov pushes to move from a partial to a full mobilization. He's moving Russia further towards war. He's convinced that Russia needs to do this to prepare to fight against Germany. And the partial mobilization was really only a half measure. And unless Russia moved to a full mobilization, or so the thinking went in Russia, the mobilization itself would be compromised, that the plans themselves to fully mobilize would become more difficult unless that happens quickly. Sazonov actually gets Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas, on board with this plan. Sazonov has the approval of Nicholas, of Tsar Nicholas, to proceed to a full mobilization. And all that needs to happen for this full mobilization to be complete is for the orders to be sent to the proper recipients, to the military officials, for the orders to be carried out. And that night, that is the night of July 29th, Russian officials are just about to do this. They're at the telegraph office and they're about to do it. And then all of a sudden, a courier from the Tsar Nicholas bursts into the room and hands a note off that explains that Nicholas has changed his mind and that he wants to go back just to partial mobilization. Now, this was a very dramatic moment, and for the time being, it reduced the tension. It reduced the chance of a full-out war happening in Europe. And why did this happen? Well, to sort of pause here, we'll need to shift over to Germany's perspective to show you why this happened this whole time, that is especially, you know, July 28th and 29th, as Russia, it becomes more and more clear that Russia is moving towards mobilization, uh, and it becomes more and more evidence that things are moving in Russia. Germany and Austria become very concerned about this, and understandably so. You know, for Germany, their plan, the famous Schlieffen plan, depended upon a slow Russian mobilization and it involves striking France first so that they could then upon the threat of their Western Front being taken care of they can move more troops to their Eastern Front to take care of Russia but that plan goes out the window if Russia is able to mobilize fast enough to threaten Germany before Germany can take care of France. And the reason this plan was in place was because it was depending upon the idea that Russia would be slower to mobilize for war. However, if they're already starting to mobilize, it becomes imminent for Germany to make a move if their plan would have any chance of success. And so any news of Russian mobilization really worries Germany. The leader of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, is, as we haven't talked about very much yet on this podcast, but he's cousins with Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. This all goes back to Queen Victoria of England, and that's kind of a story for another time, but suffice it to say that the two leaders of Germany and Russia, that they are family. On the night of July 29th, they are, unbeknownst to one another, writing each other telegrams at the same time And they're both communicating to each other in a way that wants to decrease the tension that has been building with the Russian partial mobilization and Germany noticing this. And, you know, things are rapidly moving towards war. And once Nicholas gets Wilhelm's telegram, he loses his nerve for full mobilization. And that's when he sent the courier to the telegraph office to stop the orders for full mobilization from going out. These are have kind of become known as the Willy Nicky letters. You know their nicknames Willy for Wilhelm and Nicky for Nicholas. And for the time being, they had calmed the tensions by Nicholas not sending out the order for full mobilization, and this would end up being a more dramatic moment if not for what happens the next day, and that is Nicholas changing his mind. Sazonov again. Meets with Nicholas, and again, he lays out his case for why Russia needs to fully mobilize. And Nicholas is stuck with this decision, and he realizes the stakes of what it is he has to decide. He even says something to the effect of, If I were to decide to fully mobilize, that means, you know, so many lives of my Russians that will be lost. But Sazonov's push for full mobilization wins out, and Nicholas changes his mind. That night, uh, that is July 30th, there are more Willy Nicky letters, but this time Nicholas doesn't change his mind, and on the night of July 30th, the order is sent out for a full mobilization of the Russian military. With this full mobilization from Russia, this would be a good time to pause and take a closer look at how guilty Russia is for the outbreak of World War I. I do think in the sort of general public's understanding of the July crisis and of the build-up to World War I, Russia hasn't been scrutinized, or at least publicly there isn't as much blame for Russia for the build-up to World War I as there is, say, for Germany or Austria or Serbia. But however, I do think there are some real reasons to look at Russia more closely and to question some of the moves they made. I think the clearest case for their responsibility in the July crisis has to do with these days here that we looked at on today's episode, and that is, you know, their response to the ultimatum and their response to Austria declaring war on Serbia. You have Sazonov really pushing for mobilization of the Russian military, and this as we talked about, really sort of spooks Germany and spooks Austria and really ri- raises the tension. In fact, Russia, this was the first country to take these kinds of measures. They were the first country for partial mobilization, and then on July 30th, they were the first country to declare a full mobilization. You had the armies mobilized in Serbia and Austria on on the that front between those two countries, but you didn't have the full mobilization to the extent that Russia did here, really threatening the whole European order with this mobilization. The Serbia-Austria front was, had been localized up to that point. And so if you're going to look at how Russia is to blame, you're going to look at these days when Sazanov pushes this, you know, July 28th, 29th, and then 30th when the full mobilization is put in place. I guess you're also gonna if you're gonna blame Russia, you're also gonna look at, you know, how intently did they really need to defend Serbia? Was that really their business to defend Serbia from Austria? They had their own sort of selfish ambitions and reasons, as we talked about in previous episodes, for the Balkans, especially for some trade routes in the Black Sea and and also Russian concern about the Turks having a stronger naval presence in the Black Sea, and that that, that might disrupt Russian interests, uh, economic and trading interests. And these, I guess, could be construed as more selfish for Russia when you're trying to think about Russian culpability for the outbreak of World War One, So those are the main reasons you would look at for blaming Russia. Of course, we've already looked at Austria-Hungary, we've already looked at Serbia. So You can be the one to sort of be the judge as who is most to blame. I'm just kind of laying out what the case, what case can be made for Russia here. Next week, we'll look at the consequences to this full mobilization. We'll also take a close look at the question of what Britain would do. This kind of becomes the key question in these last days of July, because Britain is in the Triple Entente and they are allies with France and Russia but there's still a question of whether or not they would actually send troops to participate in World War 1. Of course, Germany is sort of counting on British neutrality of staying out of it and Russia and France are dying to get Britain to join in. So that's kind of becomes the key question is what what is Britain going to do? And we'll look at that next week, which will be the last episode of this series. And uh, I'll bring us up all the way to when war breaks out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll. I would like to cite Christopher Clark's sleepwalkers, as well as Sean McMeekin's book, July 1914, and I'll have I have more citations in the show notes, so please check those out. Uh, we're coming up to the end of my series here on the July Crisis of 1914. Next time, I will conclude our series and take us up to right to the start of World War One. I. I really appreciate all of the interactions I get with you guys on Twitter especially so please find me on Twitter uh, my handle is in the show notes it's just d n o e l l uh, as always please do rate and review my show and please share it with your friends i would uh, love for more people to get the chance to hear it and please also let me know how what other topics you want to hear about and or anything else you want to talk with me about i'm always open to hearing more from you have a great week everyone and i'll talk to you next time